I'm hoping you had a great Thanksgiving week and uh, Thanksgiving celebrations this week. I had multiple wonderful Thanksgivings, uh, some with friends, some with family, some that were not officially Thanksgivings. Uh, I love those five F's of Thanksgiving of friends and family and food and fireplaces and football and all were present in full this weekend. You know, I have a good friend who suggests that Thanksgiving is the better of the two holidays between Thanksgiving and Christmas. He's obviously wrong, but he's onto something there in the idea that food and family, sitting around a table, sharing a meal, giving thanks, is a beautiful and spiritual thing. I think there is actually God present when we are in that process of sitting together over broken bread and enjoying life to the full. This morning, we continue a sermon series called Loving Your Neighbor and the Stranger. And we're gonna look at hospitality and specifically meals together as a part of the missional strategy for carrying out the love of our neighbor and our stranger. So in order to do so, we're gonna jump into a feast setting in John chapter two. In John chapter two, Jesus and his disciples go to a wedding in Cana. And the setting is this. Cana is a very small village, so small it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. It was probably near Nazareth where Jesus grows up, which was also a very tiny village. Jesus goes to this wedding with his disciples, and they run out of wine. Now, the ancient Near Eastern world was centered around village life, and the wedding was the high point of a village's life. In a Jewish wedding, it would take place over the course of a week. It wasn't a one- or two-day event. It was a whole week celebration. And the entire village would come out. Again, you have to remember, they lived in small villages, a couple hundred people gathered together. And that would have been everyone. Mary and Jesus and the disciples come from nearby Nazareth. They're probably part of the extended family clan that are invited. All told, there maybe are two, three hundred people there. But it's everyone. Everyone you know, everyone you grew up with is present at this wedding feast. And it was supposed to be the high point of the month or even of the year in an entire village. To run out of food or wine was unthinkable. It was unthinkable because of that central place that weddings had. They were central to community bonds, often bringing families together and reminding each other of your love and need of each other. And they were also in an agrarian society where you were scratching out your life, a rare opportunity to feast and to celebrate. Wine and fattened calves were not a regular meal, but at a wedding they were. So Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, they've run out of wine. She's concerned to protect the honor of the groom and his family. But Jesus dismisses her, doesn't he? He says, my hour is not yet come. But Mary pushes past this and says, do whatever Jesus tells you to the servants. And according to verses 6 and 7 and 8, they Jesus tells the servants to gather the stone water jars used for ceremonial cleansing. These jars, according to the passage, are 20 to 30 gallons each. A 30-gallon trash can is one of those big trash cans that you see out there. So there's six of those, potentially. And these were used for what was called ceremonial washing. We don't really do that. We wash our hands 
for bacterial purposes. They did it there for religious purposes. And so these jars were there for the entire week celebration to clean the, the, the dishes, to clean the, the forks and knives, even to clean your hands. They had six of these large jars, large trash cans filled with water that had just been used for all this washing over the week. Fill them up to the brim. And then Jesus says to the servants in verse 8, okay, now you guys take a bowl, dip it into this water jar, and then take it over to the master of ceremonies to taste. Now the master of ceremonies, the master of the feast, was in charge of everything, making sure everybody was happy, had enough food, everything was going well the whole time. To run out of wine was not only a horror for the family, the groom, but also for the master of the feast. But imagine what the servants are thinking, because we don't know, it doesn't say that they looked into the jar and all of a sudden it was filled with wine. We don't know if they dipped the bowl in and as they're walking, it looks like wine. We don't know if by the time they get to the master of feasts, it still looks like water. We don't know. They're probably thinking, why don't you do it, Jesus? That's all right, it's cool, you can do it. We want you to have the, the honor. But they do, they carry it over. And the master of the feast tastes the cup, and he's blown away. He says, normally, what everyone does, everyone knows how you do a wedding feast. It takes like a week long. The first day or two is when you give everyone the best wine. But you wait until late in the night before you give them that, like, cheap stuff. But you've reversed it. You have waited till the end to give amazingly good wine, he says in verse 10. You have kept the best to the end. Now think about what Jesus has just done. He has created 600 to 900 bottles of wine for two to 300 people. Do the math. And the kind of wine that had made the groom's best, the groom had brought out his best wine, It made the groom's best look like or taste like that $2 stuff you get from Trader Joe's. And I know some of you swear by it, but it's $2 for a reason. The amount and the quality of the wine that Jesus provides is ridiculously extravagant. It's totally unnecessary. It was far more than he needed to do. But isn't this what Jesus came to do? To offer us ridiculous extravagance? And when we talk about that, we mean of his love and his grace, right? The ridiculous extravagance of Jesus' love and his grace. But don't overlook how this wine at this feast points to that. Unnecessary, lavished joy. And verse 11 sums it up. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus is revealing who he is through this act. Jesus did not say to the disciples, I am the promised Messiah, the one that the Old Testament talked about. I have now come as your Savior and Lord. Believe in me, Jesus. He didn't say that and they believed. But he didn't need to. 
What he had done with the 900 bottles of wine at a wedding feast said it all. They got it. Oh, you're that guy. What exactly did this miracle say? Why was it the first thing Jesus chooses to do? Of all the options, right? Of all the options, if you guys were pointing to what you think Jesus should have done as his first miracle, my guess is it would not be going to a wedding feast where there was already a party, people that already had a lot to eat and drink, and turn water into wine. You would have picked something much more religious, right? We all would have. But Jesus doesn't. What does it tell us about what Jesus came to do? I think in order to understand that, you have to understand the role that table fellowship and meals played in Jesus' life and should be playing in ours. Meals together were a significant aspect of Jesus' ministry. The very first sign that Jesus does is turns water into wine at a wedding banquet to increase the celebration and the joy. It's at a meal. And how does Jesus end his ministry? On the night before his crucifixion, at a meal with his disciples, breaking bread and sharing wine and pointing to his death the next day. And after his resurrection, as he's walking on the road to Emmaus, the disciples are walking with him, but they don't recognize him until they get to the house in Emmaus. And what does he do? He breaks bread, sharing a meal with them. And they go, "Uh oh, now we see you. It was a consistent way that Jesus was revealing who he was and what he had come to do. In the ancient Near Eastern world, hospitality was highly valued. It was, ho- it was highly valued for a number of reasons. One, for survival. You depended on hospitality when you entered a, an opposing village, when you were traveling somewhere. There weren't holiday inns. There were not Hilton's there were not Marriott's. You, you had to find somebody who would host you, somebody who would be hospitable. So hospitality was necessary for survival if you had to do any travel. But hospitality within village life was also necessary for community bonds. It was a way of uniting the community together as you ate together. And eating together was also an opportunity for joy. In a hard life, in an agrarian life, you worked and worked and worked, and eating together was that opportunity to sit and relax and enjoy each other together. The ancient Near Eastern world highly valued hospitality. The religious in Jesus' day took it a step further because they were very concerned about who was invited and who you ate with when meals came together. They built their entire meal structure around reciprocity. Basically, you're a rabbi, I'm a rabbi, we eat together. Who you ate with reinforced your social status, your standing in the community. If you're a high-status person, a patriarch, you eat with other patriarchs. And for the religious, like a Pharisee, you maintained your religious purity by who you ate with and who you chose not to eat with. Jesus agreed with the religious. He agreed with the religious that who you eat with matters. which is why he purposefully ate with the poor and the outcast and the sinners. 
They were saying something by who they ate with. So was Jesus. In Luke 7, a Pharisee invites Jesus to his house. Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house as an invited guest, but in comes an uninvited guest, a sinful woman, a prostitute, and she comes to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. The Pharisees are aghast. You can't get near this woman or let her near you, but Jesus receives this sinful woman and rebukes the host, the rabbi, the Pharisee. Later in Luke, Jesus is walking along in Jericho and sees Zacchaeus, the tax collector, up in a tree and says, come down, I'm going to your house today. He invites himself over. Zacchaeus, of course, throws a party with the only friends he has, tax collectors and sinners, who are probably eating and drinking too much. But Jesus attends that party. And the religious leaders say, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus' table fellowship constantly got him in trouble with the religious. In Luke 7, 34, Jesus says, John the Baptist came fasting, but the Son of Man, talking about himself, has come eating and drinking, and you, you religious leaders, say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is an accusation that was thrown around enough around Jesus that he knew of it. You think I'm a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus was saying, the answer is no, and the answer is yes. Yes, I am a friend of tax collectors and sinners. No, I am not a glutton and drunkard just because I'm around people who are. I wonder if the same could be said of you. Are you friends with tax collectors and sinners today? Yes? A drunkard and a glutton? No. But you have to be around them to be friends with them. Meals together were integral to Jesus' missional strategy. It was the way he was constantly revealing himself and unfolding the kingdom of God as he was welcoming in the sick and the sinners and the outcast and the poor and the Pharisees, saying, any who come to me can come. This table is the table of the Lord. Come and partake. It was unfolding the kingdom because Jesus also knew that meals together can anticipate eternity. In Isaiah chapter 25, one of the most famous prophecies of Isaiah for the Jews in the first century was the promise that when the Lord would return, something new would happen. They were in exile, and they were longing for God to come to right everything. And when God came to right everything, it says in verse 6, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Verse 8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. 
a feast of rich food and well-aged wine is the description of eternity that goes along with tears being wiped away and death swallowed up forever. The longing was that the Lord would come, the Lord God would arrive, and the new creation would be ushered in when death and sorrow would be no more and feasting would be never-ending. That feast, that eternal feast, the banquet with the Lord was central to the hopes of Israel. So, when Jesus turns religious washing water into well-aged, refined, amazing festival wine, the new creation is breaking in. And the disciples get it. They see that Isaiah 25 is happening in their midst. Every meal with Jesus, not just at the wedding feast in Cana, prefigures and inaugurates the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring. And I'm under the belief that the same can be true today. Meals, food, with friends and with family can be a foretaste of eternity. An opportunity for us to take advantage of Isaiah 25 until it comes. And that's because I think meals together can also be sacramental. A sacrament is described in Anglicanism as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Jesus instituted two sacraments explicitly, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they have a sign, right? Baptism has a sign called water. You are dunked in water or poured water on, and it's the sign of God's washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit to new life in Christ. The sacrament that we celebrate each week of the Lord's Supper is the bread and the the wine, the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ broken for us. And it's saying, God, come and be present in us as you were in your crucifixion and resurrection. These signs, the bread, the wine, the water, are not the thing. Jesus is the thing, always. A sacrament is something Jesus explicitly called us to do but something can also be called sacramental. Not necessarily something we're supposed to do because Jesus instituted it, but sacramental in the sense of things through which God can reveal himself. Things through which God can move. We can experience grace and love. And in that sense, meals together can be sacramental. Pointing to God helping us to understand the gospel, giving us a taste of eternity long before we get there. Which is why table fellowship was such a significant aspect of Jesus' life and ministry, and it should be for us too. In a hurried and divided and increasingly lonely and isolated world, I think we need the sacramental grace of meals together Meals together with Christians. Meals together with friends outside of the church. Meals together with neighbors. Meals together maybe even with strangers. Sarah Gaston Barton, the chaplain at Pepperdine University, wrote, the food we eat 
and the people with whom we eat all week long is mysteriously connected to the sacramental meal of bread and wine that we eat at church on Sundays. I think she's onto something there, and I think we can also reverse it. Every week we partake of a common meal. Let this propel you out into the community to do what you are called to do, to break bread with your brothers and sisters, your neighbors and friends, to see and experience God as you show love in common table. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced God yourself in hospitality or in food itself or in meals together? I have. You know, one of the places you often experience the love of God through the gift of hospitality is if you ever travel to the developing world. You have to get out of Europe and North America in order to find it most of the time. I was in Eastern Bloc of Europe uh, a number of years back and stayed in people's homes in Croatia and Romania, and they offered up their beds and their food. And I was blown away by how open they were with their homes and their food. And you know what it's like if you've been to Central America or South America or to Africa or to the Far East. When I was in Nepal, I felt the same thing. A generous hospitality that points you to God's generosity and love. We are so stingy even though we have so much. But you step outside of our world in the West and you will find the power of the presence of God in the hospitality of people who don't even know you. Have you experienced God in hospitality? I've experienced God in the joy of food. (laughs) This may sound strange, but I think that I have a friend who's a chef, and over the years he's had different restaurants, and I've been to his restaurants before. Two times in particular I can remember, 20-some years ago and about 10 years ago, where the restaurant was a little slower, and he had the time to lay out food in front of us, just kind of extra stuff here and there. It was like, I I couldn't even order. He just was laying out stuff in front of us, one thing after the next, food and drink. Some of the most amazing tastes I've ever come across. And just blown away by the joy of the pleasure of fine food by somebody who was creative and trained and gifted and was offering it to another friend. God created us with senses. That's not an accident that you have a sense of smell or of taste or of touch. The sight of the beauty of autumn leaves, the scent of fresh baked cookies or pie or brownies, the sound of a symphony or of waves crashing or a stream in the mountains, the taste of Thanksgiving dinner or coffee early in the morning or chocolate at any time. It is sacramental and heavenly. Why does God give us these senses? Because he loves us. He loves his creation, and he wants us to enjoy his creation and thereby worship him, not just to gluttonously take it in, but to enable the food, the senses, the taste to cause us to say, thank you, God. You are a good and generous and ridiculously extravagant God. Have you experienced God in hospitality or food or meals together? I have thankfully experienced that love and that grace myself. I've talked often about Christmas Eve at my aunt's house. I could tell you also about Christmas morning at my great-grandmother's nearby in Vienna. 
These memories are seared into my mind with joy, with comfort, with home, with family, with the foods. All those things recurring inside because of the great joy of being together as family in some of these meals. I've experienced that in intentional feasts with close friends. Not the things you do all the time, but the occasional Christmas or big birthday or celebration where you gather as friends intentionally with a, a thought-out meal or a great restaurant. And at the, in the middle of the meal, at the end of the day, it is, it is a sense of just fullness. Not just full because I ate too much, but spiritually, emotionally, relationally full. It's such joy. But it can also be experienced, the presence of God, the grace of God, the love of God, in just regular and ordinary meals in homes over time. I've had the blessing of having that with cousins, with friends through the years. The first time we ever did it was actually when Sarah and I lived in England, and uh, there was a regular practice called Sunday dinner in England. It was supposed to be you go to church, and then you had Sunday dinner with your friends. Well, Helen Hen were neighbors of ours, Helen and Henry, but we called them Helen Hen. We were tight like that. But we didn't start off tight. They were just neighbors who had kids roughly our age. And they said, do you want to come over for for Sunday dinner? So we did. We had been at church. They had long years ago given up going to church. But we sat down at table with them. And five hours later, we were still there. And then a month later, we did it again, just at our house. And a month later, at theirs. And every one of those meals was ones I looked forward to. Just fondly remembering our hours together, laughing, talking, eating, drinking, kids running around. Spiritual and deep joy can be had in the midst of intentional meals together. What a gift. And it can have the impact of changing lives. Rosario Butterfield, many of you know her story, but if you don't, she was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University and also a staunch atheist and secularist. She was writing her second book, and her second book was going to be on why Christians are so hateful. So she set about to write this book, and one of the first things she did was send off a missive in the form of an editorial in the newspaper that was talking about the problem of of our culture today and the way that Christians are so hateful. In response to this, somebody who was in her neighborhood, a guy named Ken and his wife Folly, Ken and Folly Smith invited Rosario over for dinner. Ken was a pastor at a reformed church up near Syracuse, and he said, look, I want to hear what you have to say, what some of your frustrations are, and maybe you can use me to ask questions about Christianity. You're trying to figure it out um, so you can write about this, so you might as well interview me on this. He invited her over for dinner. They had a long conversation with his wife and Ken and Folly, and and Rosario was there. And Rosario, summing it up, said, What surprised her when she left their house was they didn't try to convert me or invite me to church. They didn't see me as a project, and I could sense it. I didn't go to church for two years, but every week for two years, I was in their home. Eventually, Rosario came to faith in Christ and has become an advocate for radical ordinary hospitality. That's what she calls it. She writes in another place, the practice of biblical hospitality is an untouched resource 
in bringing the gospel upstream in our polarized post-Christian world. If you've been a Christian for a long time, if you're over 40 or 50, and you've been in this culture for a long time, you will actually know a time when belief preceded belonging, meaning you could actually convince somebody to believe in Christianity just by didactic teaching, by answering their arguments and questions. That still occasionally happens, but far more often today, and especially with the younger people, people under 40 rather than over 40, people belong before they believe. It's in the process of being present with, showing up at, eating with, that they begin to understand that maybe there's something in this Jesus. I think it is so powerful to be present, to belong, and to be a part of eating together, that I would suggest sharing meals in homes may be the most effective missional strategy for the 21st century. In a culture that is divided and hurried and lonely, in a culture where belonging is going to precede belief more often than not, sharing meals in homes may be the most effective missional strategy for the 21st century. So, regardless of your motives, okay, right? If you want to cultivate church community for us to become an extended family, or if you just personally want more friends, deeper friendships, not just more, deeper friendships. Or if you want to carry out what Jesus said when he said, love your neighbor. Then practice biblical hospitality. Find ways to open yourself, to open your home, to open your table, to say yes when invited. Become a church. We could become a church that invites each other over regularly and also does so with our neighbor. How? How do you do this? I'm just going to give a couple, three quick things. First, pray. That's not a throw-out line, pray. When God is the person you're seeking, he will put people on your heart, in your church, outside of your church, old friends, new friends, neighbors, to invite over. And depending on who it is, keep praying. God, give me wisdom in spending time with people. I don't have unlimited time. Pray Secondly, I would say keep it simple. Do what is natural and easy for you. And and honestly, given your stage of life, given some of the constraints you might have on your resources, on uh, on your abilities, on your living situation, you may not be able to host people. But you know what? At that point, team up with somebody. Find a friend who is a good host and show up with them. Be present with them to the best of your ability. This is not about being a master chef or a Martha Stewart entertainer. As Mary and Martha learned, it's about being present with your guest and being a very present guest. And then I would say do it again, regularly or irregularly over time. Allow God to work sacramentally in the meals that we have together. You know, while we were enemies, Jesus prepared a meal for us himself, He said, come and partake. Partake of me and have life. When you or I open our homes, offer food, we are giving of ourselves like Jesus did to us. And that's the process whereby strangers might even become your neighbors and where acquaintances can become your family and friends and life can be brought to your home 
and to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to the end of this Thanksgiving week, we thank you for the gift of family and friends and food. I pray that you would give us the ability to see you in the joys of life, to not just turn to them for our own pleasure, but to let them cause us to be turned to you in worship. And strengthen us, Lord, to love others, to open ourselves and our homes and our lives to our Christian friends, our neighbors, to people that we don't yet know. Be present in all that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.